Good morning. Welcome here. Uh, my name is Russ. I'm the director of our youth ministries. It is a privilege to bring God's word. But before I say that, I want to say Happy Mother's Day. Yeah? Happy Mother's Day. All those moms out there. You know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my mother. And dads, you're going to get that same lame joke next month. But uh, for real, thank you to all the moms uh, for the work that you do for your families. You know, I think of my own mother and how strong she's been for us as a family and how much of a spiritual anchor she was and how much she sacrificed for my brothers, my sister, uh, and myself. And I'm incredibly grateful to call her mom, incredibly grateful to have her as the grandmother uh, to my daughter. Uh, and she deserves to be celebrated more than just uh, today, as do all moms. So um, thank you. And uh, I also want to acknowledge, though, that today can be uh, difficult for some of us. You know, whether it's that stinging reminder of a recent loss or an estranged relationship or um, the, the, the grief of desiring to be a mother but unable to be so uh, at this moment, um, take heart. Our God is still good. You know, whatever we lack in our personal families, God is gracious and good to give us uh, in our spiritual and extended spiritual family in Christ, whether it's the opportunity to be loved for uh, and motherly cared for by older women uh, in our church or the opportunity to display those motherly qualities. Um, God has gifted each and every woman uh, with for, and for the care and love for the children of our church community. Thank you for doing that. It's also a privilege to serve alongside our youth again on our youth takeover Sunday. Weren't they great uh, leading us in a time of worship? Amen. Now, I stand incredibly proud of the students and leaders we have uh, in our ministry, and I say this every time we have our youth takeover Sundays, um, but it's so cool to be a part of a church that allows us, right, the young people, uh, to serve and be a part of the function of a Sunday morning um, and to be involved in the life of the church. So thank you for being such a great church that supports our youth ministry. Thank you for, even this morning, the, the, the order of the service might have been different than what you're used to. Thank you for putting up uh, with that and supporting us as a youth youth ministry. Um, but uh, this morning we are going to continue in our series in Titus. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn once again to that book. And if you don't have a Bible, you know the drill. Uh, or if you don't know the drill, you just throw your hand up in the air right now and our ushers and our students are going to be walking these aisles and they'll give you a Bible and place it into your hands. And if you don't own one, uh, take this home. This is our little gift to you. But as you turn to Titus chapter 2, you will know if you've been following along that uh, Pastor Kai opened this series by setting the stage for what was going on at the time Paul was writing this letter. You know, Titus was to be put in charge of the church in Crete, and Paul was giving him specific instructions uh, for his preparation for the roller coaster ride that was to be pastoring this church. And last week we looked at Paul's instruction in chapter one for choosing leadership and specifically elder leadership and how we are to strive towards having these qualities and growing in these qualities and how they are a product of the transformation that takes place when we understand and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning we're gonna look at the next part in chapter two. Paul is now giving Titus instructions to speak to and teach to, different, to two different age demographics within the church, and specifically in how they are to conduct themselves. And this is not in a legalistic way as if this was like a prerequisite to join the Cretan church, but as we will see, this is to be an expected product of gospel transformation and a response to sound doctrinal teaching. 
And I'm going to read from verses 1 to 8 and then skip down to 11 and 15 and begin to unpack it. So if you're in Titus chapter 2, you can follow along with me. So beginning in verse 1, it says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, he's speaking to Titus here, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And down to 11, it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who himself gave for us to redeem, uh, who, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works and declare these things, he says. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. There's a lot to unpack in this, and before I do so, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to move. You know, we, we need to ask for the Lord to soften our hearts to receive his word, so would you join me as we pray right now? God, we come before you and acknowledge your goodness. Lord, we acknowledge that you are holy, that you are righteous, that you are great. Great are you, Lord, is what we just sung. Lord, the God that takes a, uh, an offer that's less than what businesses were offering for a building, but for your purpose to say, this is what I want to do. So God, we thank you for that. And right now, Lord, we just pray that you would be with us um, as we dive into your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us and speak to us powerfully. God, soften our hearts. If anyone's here this morning with a, with a hardened heart or a stubborn heart to what your word has to say, Lord, we pray that your spirit would move. You would soften and break down those strongholds and reveal to us the truth that you desire for us to hear this morning. Lord, speak powerfully. It's not me standing here this morning. It's you speaking. So God, that's what we ask. And we pray this in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. So over the next two weeks, um, we are going to camp in the same passage here in Titus chapter two. Uh, there'll be areas of this text that I'm not gonna shed too much light on or, or give great emphasis to as Lord willing, Pastor Godfrey, who's gonna bring the word to us next week, is going to speak to some of the instructions that I skip over this morning. So think of these next two weeks as like a mini-series within our mini-series. All right, and you need to be at both of them to get the full power of what's coming to you out of chapter two. Now, the direction that I believe the Spirit ended up taking uh, me this morning in my, in my preparation in the previous weeks uh, is a bit different than what was originally planned when this series was laid out and mapped out. Uh, in this section, Paul's instructing Titus to teach two different demographics, right? The, the older demographic and the younger, and I was given the task to speak to the younger generation. Surprise, surprise. But there's more here than just instructions to two different demographics, 
There is something at the root of these instructions that can fly beneath our radar if we don't give it time to sink in. And I was originally going to just make mention of this. You know, I was just going to have it as one of my points, but the more I dove in, it just, it just took over. I couldn't stray away from it. As I, as I moved on to another thought or another way this, this passage was speaking, the Spirit stirred up the text and everything pointed back to this one idea. Now, I'm going to be speaking a little bit also like, to, like, to, to be uh, faithful to the speak to younger people, Russ, I'm going to have a little bit of a bend to our younger generations, but there's something in here that all of us need to hear. So, with that being said, let's look back at our text and begin to unpack it. So, back at verse 1, it says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Before Paul gives any instruction on how the older and younger generations are to conduct themselves, he first charges Titus with the responsibility to ensure that his teaching is sound. Or as Kai made mention a few weeks ago, that word sound can also be translated as healthy. Teach what's consistent with healthy doctrine, Titus. Interestingly, every time Paul uses the phrase sound doctrine in his, uh, in his writing, and he uses it four times throughout his letters, it's always in juxtaposition to false teaching. He says it twice in his two letters to Titus, or sorry, to Timothy, and twice in this letter to Titus. He first lets his reader know, whether it was Timothy or obviously in this case Titus, that there, there was false teachings that were evident in his immediate culture, and he uses those false teachings as a point to transition, transition into phrases like, but as for you, you know, teach this way. Or teach what accords with, what's consistent with sound doctrine. These teachers are leading people away with their false gospels. Don't do that, Titus. Teach what is pure. Teach what is sound. Paul was concerned with this emphasis on sound doctrinal teaching because he viewed healthy or sound doctrinal teaching as the root that produces the fruit of healthy personal practice, which he's going to instruct then in verses 2 to 8. Why? Because he sees that healthy doctrinal teaching is rooted in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and anything outside of that is false. So that's our big idea this morning. That's where I believe the Spirit led me to, 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 as we unpack this passage, is this, beware of false doctrines. Beware of false doctrines. If we are to conduct ourselves in a manner that is upright and consistent with what Paul would say in Romans 12, 1, where we are to no longer be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds, it first starts, obviously, with placing faith in Jesus Christ, you know, by humbling ourselves before a holy God and acknowledging our position before him as an enemy and a sinner in dire need of his grace and mercy, And it's then fueled by a heart and mind that saturates itself in proper, truthful teaching rooted in that same gospel. Paul was calling out the false teachers in Crete and warning Titus to rebuke them. Something that we should make noteworthy of is that he wasn't necessarily warning against secular teaching. It wasn't like the teaching he warned Titus of was, God doesn't exist as if that was something that concerned him. No, no, look at verse 16 of chapter one, right before it says, but as for you, it says they profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. 
Notice they profess to know God, but deny him by their works. These were teachings that were dressed up like Christianity. You know, they, they were Jewish myths, as, as Paul alludes to in chapter 1, that if not properly sifted through or discerned, would deceive followers of the way or would deceive Christians. It would deceive them into believing things about God that just weren't true. And he says, but as for you, Titus, don't be like them. Paul's instructing Titus as a teacher to teach against them and to teach what's consistent with truth. And, I, and myself, as a teacher this morning, I have an obligation to do the same. And this is where I believe the Spirit just derailed any presupposed direction I had coming into this text. Because if, if we are to rightly interpret this passage and rightly apply it, we need to be equipped with true understanding, true biblical doctrine, and also what those unsolid or unsound or false doctrines that oppose it are. Because good, sound doctrine is important. Paul makes great emphasis of that again. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. He says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Declare these things. Strongly encourage people. Urge them. Strongly and sharply disapprove and criticize anything that comes against this. And let no one ignore you when you're doing it. So why make a fuss about that right now, Russ? Like, why are you so lit up about that right now? Because I'm lit up about it because there are similar, very similar distractions that are, and, and, and influences um, for us today that are very similar to the myths that uh, Paul was warning the first century Christians in Crete about, and especially for us young people. Because we are so quick to latch on to trendy approaches to God's word. We're so quick to latch on to trendy movements that are dressed up like Christianity, either intentionally or indirectly, and they distract us from the truth. And when I say young people, I don't just mean our youth group. Right? Like young in Paul's context, when he says older men like train the younger men, he's saying anyone under the age of 50 is young. Right? In our context, young's a little bit different. In our context, Young is primarily dealing with two generations, uh, Generation Z, which is our youth, anyone born 1999 to 2015, and then my generation, the millennials, 1984 to 1998, but at the same time, you Gen Xers, don't count yourselves out of this. Gen X is still involved in young people. And this is also going to help set the stage for what Pastor Godfrey is going to bring to us next week as he expresses the need and importance of godly discipleship from the older generations to the younger. Why it's so important. So then, what are they? What are these false teachings you're talking about, Russ? What are these false doctrines? What has infiltrated the church that we need to be aware of? Well, there's many of them, to be honest, but we're just going to focus on two, two that um, specifically speak to how we could interpret or approach this text in Titus 2. And here's how I'm going to structure this. I'm going to first give the false doctrine or the false teaching and use an example of how it would affect this text, and then I'm going to give the sound doctrinal rebuttal and use it within the text again, how we can view it through that lens. So here it is, false doctrine one, moralism. Moralism, my efforts in my moral behavior secure favor with God. 
Moralism, when boiled down, is this idea that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in my behavior. See, in the, in the paraphrased words of Albert Moeller, he says, there's a, there's a message being communicated to the lost persons that what God desires for them and demands of them is to get their lives straightened out. How many of us maybe at one point in our lives or right now think that same thing? I just got to get my life straightened out before God can do anything with me. I just got to be better. Because Moeller is saying this is for lost persons, but I would even interject it's also believed by those who profess faith in Christ to some degree. And this can be particularly troublesome then when we look at what Paul says in verses 2 to 6. Look at verse 2 again. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, and then train these young men and young women to do the same thing. Be self-controlled, be pure, be submissive. It it becomes troublesome because if you are influenced by or hold to the false doctrine of moralism, you might look at this passage and think, okay, okay. God is going to accept me and be proud of me if I just strive to be more self-controlled, or if I strive to be more pure, or if I strive to be more dignified, and then once I master that, I make God happy. And as long as I make God happy, I've secured my salvation, and that makes me happy. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe we just beat ourselves up with this. You know, like... I am failing right now in my self-control. Russ, I, I can't control my anger. You know, I, I was doing so well, and then I came home from work one evening after a long day of work, and as, as soon as I opened the door, my kid just drop-kicked his sister in the face. And I was like, well, what are you doing? Why would you do something like that? And he's like, because she's stupid. And now she's screaming around over here, and he's running around like an idiot over here. And my wife came to me and said, you need to deal with them because I've been dealing with them all day. I just wanted to come home to a quiet house with dinner ready, and they don't know what, what happened to me at work today, and I absolutely lost it on them. And then we beat ourselves up about it. Like, clearly, I have no self-control then, Russ. Because if I did, I would have been able to curb my anger. And I've got to be a brutal Christian because I can't do something as simple as control my temper. God isn't happy with me. I need to improve my behavior now. I need to make sure that I master my anger because if I don't, God's going to punish me or he's going to think less of me if I can't do this. See, this passage was never meant to be interpreted or approached and viewed with that lens. Titus was up against a very similar false teaching. According to scholars, um, some scholars, one of those Jewish myths talked about in chapter one was this tendency to focus on ritual purity. You know, that's why Paul's calling out the circumcision party. They had this idea that the only way to be recognized or the only way to be accepted by God was to continue with the physical practice of circumcision. You know, it's an Old Testament practice which served a purpose but only until its ultimate fulfillment was accomplished in the finished work of Jesus Christ. They believed their actions secured their salvation, just like Christian moralists believe theirs do the same. Now, we as a church, we don't hold to a moralistic approach to the gospel, nor have we or will we, by God's mercy or grace, ever teach it. 
Yet it's something that many of us can be so deceived into believing. Think about it. It's so deeply soaked into our culture. A good child gets dessert. A bad child goes to their room. You know, a good student gets good grades. A bad student goes to the office. A good worker gets a promotion. A bad worker gets fired. We reward actions and works as a culture, so it's easy to understand why we would be deceived into thinking God does the same. But if God doesn't do the same, then what what does sound teaching say? What does sound doctrine say? How can we approach this text with a healthy understanding? Well, if moralism was our false doctrine, our sound truth is grace. You know, God's efforts in showing grace through Jesus Christ in place of my sin secures my salvation, but it then compels my moral behavior. Look at verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Titus, Paul is saying, teach the older men to be sober-minded and self-controlled. Teach the older women to be reverent in their behavior and teach them to train the younger generations to do the same, but ensure that you're teaching them in a way that's consistent with sound doctrine. Don't teach them in a way that says they need to do this to be accepted by God, but teach them in a way that as they view God's efforts in his grace shown towards them in place of their sin, they're secured forever in their salvation, and then that understanding now is compelling them to act in the way I'm about to teach you to instruct them. We don't strive to grow in our self-control or our reverent behavior or our purity or our kindness or submission because it grants us favor with God. No, grace member is, something, is a, receiving something that we don't deserve. We don't deserve salvation on our own merit. God gave it to us through his son Jesus. We then strive to grow in what Paul outlines because our hearts have been transformed. Our minds have been renewed. Our understanding that God has done the work. Salvation has come to us by grace, by grace alone. And our response is a gratefulness and a thankfulness that um, trains us, verse 12 says, trains us to renounce the ungodliness and worldly passions that we once walked in. God has done the work. His favor rests in you because of his favor he has towards his son, Jesus Christ. Your conduct isn't an effort to obtain God's favor, but a response for obtaining it. That's what Paul is teaching. Don't believe the deception of moralism. It's a false gospel. It's not the only one that can affect us in our approach to this passage. The next one's much more subtle, all right, but it's equally as deceptive as moralism. So let me unpack it. The second one is, our second false doctrine is postmodernism. I don't need to be concerned about my moral behavior. Let's go the complete opposite direction. See, postmodern thinking is a worldview that was established in the mid to late 20th century, so it's not too old. It's fairly broad as a movement, but nonetheless, it has a carefully thought out theology, carefully thought out philosophy, and an approach to ethics. And the subheading you see up there, I don't need to be concerned, is, a, is rooted in the true postmodern ethical mantra, which says this, since there is no objective moral reality, because there's no God to govern it, 
Why concern myself with ethical issues and moral behavior? Or said more plainly, God doesn't exist. Okay, and since God doesn't exist, there's no governing standard for my morality. And since there's no governing standard for my morality, why should I be concerned with my own? Why do I need to maintain my purity? Why do I need to work on my self-control? Why do I need to be concerned with my integrity? Now at its core, obviously, postmodern thinking eliminates the need for a God because postmoderns believe there is no God. That's why it's a little bit more subtle for us as followers of Jesus, because if we follow Jesus, at the core, we believe God exists. Right, so how can Christians be influenced then by postmodern thinking? If one says God doesn't exist and we say God does exist, how have these intersected? How is it a false teaching we've been deceived into following? Why does it need to be rebuked within the walls of the church? I understand why it should be rebuked on the outside, but why within them? Well, because beneath the surface, whether we would like to admit it or not, we've bought into the idea that we don't have to be concerned about our moral behavior. What I mean by this is this idea of approaching a passage like this with instructions on our conduct and being like, you know, I see it says I should be self-controlled. I see it says I should be pure. I see it says I should be dignified, but I'm not gonna really do anything about that. It's in one year and it's out the other. Anyone ever been in that position before? I see what it's saying me, telling me to do, but eh. It's because we don't have any concern for our moral conduct. Why? Because we couldn't be bothered with submitting to the authority of God. That's what it boils down to. And if I'm to be honest, since I'm speaking to our younger generations, there is this passive apathy I see all the time in our youth group. There's this passive apathy I see all the time in our young adult group. In fact, I see it in every youth group and young adult program I've ever been a part of for the last 14 years. Heck, I see this in me. This is something I need to be rebuked of. This is a false doctrine that I am so easily deceived by. This idea that I can come to a passage like this, or Colossians 3, or Romans 12, or Ephesians 4, and if you don't know those passages, look them up because they're saying very similar things to what Titus, or Paul is instructing Titus here in chapter 2, and I can look at them and go, hmm, that's nice, but do nothing about it. Or if I'm feeling especially holy that day, you know, after I read it, I feel some sense of conviction or like some Holy Spirit liver quiver, and like I, I nod in approval as I read it, like, yes, I should be. I definitely should be working on my self-control. I'm, I'm horrible at that right now. And I read, and I nod in approval, close my Bible up, and then play Skyrim for the next three hours. You know, after I was just convicted to be more self-controlled or self-disciplined in the, the effective use as my, of my time as a husband, the effective use of my time as a father, as a ministry director, I read it, in one year, out the other. Why? Because at that moment, in my heart of hearts, I have chosen to believe that I do not need to take into account my actions or my moral behavior before an almighty, holy God. The postmodernist does this because he believes that there's no God to begin with, so what's my excuse? What's our excuse? But Russ, hold on a second. 
isn't that moralism now? I mean, you just told me that my moral behavior doesn't earn me any favor with God, that the work Jesus Christ has done has granted me favor with him, and now you're saying I do need to be concerned with it? I'm confused. I, <laughs> I don't, I don't, what? And here we seem to have this like great dichotomy, all right, this, this division, this contrast of two things that seem to oppose each other or are entirely different, or at least on the surface they seem to be. And this has been greatly d- debated, and I've sat down with students and young adults over the years and tried to reconcile what Paul says in Ephesians 2 with what James says in James 2. You know, Ephesians 2, it's by grace you have been saved, not by your works, so you can't brag about it. It's all grace. And then James says, hey, but guess what? Faith without works, it's dead. You're like, what? How do these passages reconcile? How do, how do they work together? There's, they seem to oppose each other, but what are they getting at? How do they intersect? Well, then if our sound doctrinal teach, here's our sound doctrinal teaching then in opposition to the false teaching of postmodernism. Grace. For us, that's the same truth that rebuttals moralism. See, whether we approach this text from a foundation of legalism, okay, or we approach it with a foundation of apathy, verses 11 to 14 are still the truth and the hope and the motivation that we hold on to. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace brings you salvation by earning the favor bestowed upon Jesus Christ. That's true, and that's amazing. And that should lift a massive weight off your shoulders as you come to the knowledge that your tireless efforts to pick yourself up off the ground every time you stumble in your inability to walk a righteous life in no way loses the favor God has in you because of the favor he has in his son, Jesus Christ. It then, in verse 12, trains us. This knowledge trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The knowledge of grace trains us to put to death the habits and conduct we had before we knew Jesus and to then seek upright, righteous living. Be holy, for I am holy. And if you're apathetic or just straight up disobedient in our response to our own righteous living, well then we either don't understand grace or like me, you need to be reminded of it again. I need to be reminded of grace. I fall into this deception. I need to be reminded of grace. Grace not only frees you, grace compels you to respond. Why? Continuing on in verse 13, because we are waiting for our blessed hope. We are waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for great works. As we wait in this life for the glory that is to come when we meet Christ face to face, that same man, that same God who gave himself for us. Why? So he could redeem us, 
purify us for himself, for his possession. And that's why we strive then to be zealous for good works, why we strive to be greatly enthusiastic in our pursuit of good works. Knowing that Jesus has given me, was given in my place to experience the wrath and justice of a holy God for the sin and treason I committed and this was done for no other reason outside of God's intentional love and desire for relationship with me, should then compel me to enthusiastically desire to worship and serve him and act and conduct myself in a way that reflects the image of his son. Moralism is a false doctrine. Postmodernism is a false doctrine, but the grace of God is sound. God has done the work. Let that hope free you. You know, let let the truth of that compel you to live righteously. You might be thinking, okay, I'm, but especially us as, as, as millennials, we want immediate results. Okay, Russ, you told me this, but what do I do with it? Like, I want to change tomorrow. If I'm not changed by tomorrow, I'm going to fall back into this rut. Hey, there's this thing called sanctification, From the moment we place faith in Jesus Christ to the moment we see him face to face, whether that's when he comes and returns or calls us home, he is sanctifying us. And there's this image, there's this funny gif, I tried to get it but I couldn't figure out how it would work with our system here, um, of this man with a bunch of briefcases going up and up escalator and he trips over the first step on the escalator and like stumbles and like throws this briefcase this way and is like holding on to the handrail and like rolling as he's being brought up this up escalator, that's sanctification. 100%. We are stumbling through life and we're going to fall off the train and we're going to forget grace, but we're moving forward because we've been secured in our salvation in Jesus Christ. Absolutely, amen. And as we close now, as our worship team comes up, we are going to respond with a song. And that song is a song that I think greatly expresses a heart that understands grace. It's a song many of us know. And there's a verse in the song that proclaims this, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. That's Ephesians 2. Okay, I will not boast in the works that I have done because my works mean nothing in terms of earning and securing my salvation. But the verse song goes on and says, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's James 2. The pride that we have in our Savior and the work he accomplished on the cross then compels us to boast all the more in his glory and resurrection. And we do not only do that with our mouths, but we also desire to do that with our righteous living. The effects of moralism causes us to either boast in our efforts to please God or retreat in our inefficiency to do so. And the effects of postmodernism causes us to be apathetic in our conduct, but grace causes us to see, to be free from burden and compels us to be zealous for good work. So let's sing this song with true conviction. If we stand here this morning in awe of the wonder and amazement of God and his unbelievable grace, then we can truly sing with deepest conviction that we can boast in Jesus Christ. In his death, 
in his resurrection because it's by, the, it's by this power by which we have been saved and we choose to respond now with genuine affection. So let's respond. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, you are so good and so holy and so righteous. Lord, and many of us needed to have a reminder of that this morning. Where we come to a passage like this and we just know that we can't meet it. We've been trying all week. We've been trying all month. We've been trying for years and we still can't be self-controlled and we still can't be uh, uh, aware of our purity or aware of our kindness. But God, we've placed it, for those of us that have placed faith in you, knowing that you are the one true God that can save us from the pits of hell, save us from the sins that we have committed and the only one who can do so. God, we are gonna be stretched along this life, falling up and up escalator tumbling, stumbling our whole way through it. But Lord, we don't have to wear the burden of needing to meet your favor or meet your affections because that's already been found in Jesus Christ and we just need to move forward in faith and God, may that transform our thinking and transform the way that we conduct ourselves and transform our lives so that we can begin practicing and training ourselves now in righteous living. So God, may we sing this song right now in absolute adoration and praise and worship of who you are. We pray this and ask in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.